Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Investigative journalism is hard. You can work for months, even years on a subject you think is the most important in the world, only for the powers that be to carry on regardless. So I spent years writing about the government's welfare reform programme and its changes to disability benefits. And I really hoped that there would be some kind of change to the decisions that have been taken as a result of that reporting. And there wasn't really. But just occasionally, Journalism can bring about great changes in the world. And this is one of those stories. My name's Emilio Gentleman and I'm a reporter with The Guardian. You will have heard of Amelia's work. For years, she's uncovered massive stories for The Guardian. Last year, she reported a story that would have seismic repercussions, affecting thousands of people's lives. The story of the betrayal of the Windrush generation. We probably all know how it ends, but where does it begin? I'm Maeve McLennigan. This is The Tip-Off. The story starts back in October 2017. It's half-term holidays, and Amelia's off work, on holiday with her kids. One day, unable to switch off from work completely, she checks her emails which is when she spots a message. With a very striking subject line that said, urgent, a lady who has lived in Britain for 49 years is being deported. And I get a lot of emails asking me to look at problematic decisions by the Home Office or by the DWP. But there was something so unusual about the idea that somebody who lived here for almost 50 years could be on the point of deportation, that I was very interested. Amelia forwarded the email on to a colleague, asking her to look into it further. And what happened was that the woman, Paulette Wilson, had actually been released from detention by the time a reporter got in touch with her. And her case was temporarily resolved to all intents and purposes. But when I got back from holiday, I just still thought it was really odd that somebody who had lived here for so long had been held in detention for a week. It just seemed really hard to explain. So I got back in touch with the charity and I contacted them to see whether I could go and interview her at home in Wolverhampton. After several messages back and forth, the charity agreed to set up a meeting with Paulette. 
So a month or so after receiving that first email, Amelia was on the train to Wolverhampton. After a 20-minute walk from the station, she arrived at Paulette's flat. Her flat is on the second floor of a apartment block in an estate not far from the station. And we sat, the four of us, and talked for a couple of hours. I talked to her caseworker and her daughter in the kitchen for a while whilst the Guardian photographer came and took a lot of photographs of Paulette Wilson. And I spent a couple of hours in her flat talking to her and to her daughter and to her caseworker at the refugee and migrant centre in Wolverhampton who'd been supporting her, trying to understand why she'd been detained in Yarlswood for a week and why it was that she was still being told by the Home Office that she was liable for deportation back to Jamaica, a country that she left when she was about 10 and that she hadn't visited for the intervening half a century. It was a really, really memorable morning because when I listen back to the tape of my conversation with them, I can kind of hear in my own voice this surprise and my own difficulty in understanding what had happened to her and why the decisions had continued to be made by the Home Office that wrongly classified her as someone living here illegally. 61-year-old Paulette told Amelia how she had lived in the UK for 50 years until one day she received a letter informing her that she was an illegal immigrant and was going to be removed and sent back to Jamaica, the country she'd left when she was 10 years old and had never visited since. She had come perilously close to deportation. After being held in Yarlswood Detention Centre, she'd been transferred to a removal centre next to Heathrow Airport, ready to be handcuffed and led onto a plane. It was only thanks to the Refugee and Migrant Centre charity and her local MP that the deportation was stopped. The hostile environment made me feel like I, I was an alien, like I didn't exist. I'm seeing my mum. She's changed. She's not the same person. There was one time I went to see my mum and she wouldn't open the door. And I said, Mum, I can hear you. I know you're in there. Open the door. And she opened the door and she was in bits. She was crying. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, I just, I just don't know. And I, she said, I'll go to, into my room and I feel like I'm in Yarl's Wood. Paulette had not been sure whether she should talk out. Even though she was out of the detention centre, she still didn't trust that the immigration department wouldn't revisit her case and deport her after all. And this was something that was problematic all the way through writing about this, that if you're somebody who's been designated an illegal immigrant, the last thing you want is to have your picture in the paper underneath a headline that suggests that you might not be in the country legally. But Paulette Wilson decided in the end, with the support of her daughter, that she did want to talk about what had happened to her because it was so outrageous. Amelia couldn't rely on Paulette's account alone. People can get details confused or dates mixed up. She needed documentation. And luckily, the refugee charity could help. Because she had a caseworker who'd been through all of her documents and she had been given a pro bono lawyer by the charity who'd also looked into the evidence that she was providing the Home Office. And that charity worker had more to say. This wasn't just happening to Paulette. 
the charity was able to begin to help me understand that her case wasn't just a really peculiar one-off, but it was an extreme version of something that was beginning to happen to quite a lot of people. So this charity had seen a number of people who were nearing retirement age, who'd lived in Britain all of their lives, having come as children from Commonwealth countries, who were beginning to see their status here questioned by the Home Office, and who were beginning to have all number of different kind of problems as a result. Some of them had lost their jobs, some of them had had their driving licence revoked, some of them were having problems with their housing because they were being told that they were here illegally. So although Paulette Wilson was the only person that they come across who had been detained and who'd been threatened with deportation, they were seeing a lot of other low-level problems. So having, having somebody from that charity there to explain the background was really, really helpful. Amelia was on to something. Something that had the potential to be big. But what to do? Should she wait and see if there was more to add, or should she publish then and get the story of Paulette out into the world? I think her story was so outrageous that I was anxious to get it published as soon as possible, not least because she felt that she was still unable to sleep easily every night because she was so worried about people from immigration enforcement coming and knocking on her door and detaining her again, and because she'd been told that she was still under threat of deportation. So there was really no need to hold back. And her story was just so extraordinary. This was somebody who'd been in primary school in Britain, who'd done her secondary education here, who'd worked all her life, who'd paid taxes, and who had at some point worked at the House of Commons, worked in the canteen there serving MPs and House of Commons workers. And she was somebody who'd lived a law-abiding life in the UK for a very long time, for whom there was absolutely no reason to detain her. She posed no threat to anyone. So it was a very straightforward story, very straightforward to write, and we published it on the front of our features section with very powerful photographs that I think helped people to understand that this was somebody real and human who had been very, very badly treated. So on the 28th of November, The Guardian published Paulette's story. But they had no idea then that this would be the start of a journey that would end up going all the way to the top of government. Days after the publication of the article about Paulette, Amelia was feeling conflicted. There had been an outpouring of anger from Guardian readers, but politicians had largely ignored the story. There was silence. Even when Amelia had gone to the Home Office to get their response for inclusion in that first article, that seemed kind of blasé, dismissive almost. I gave her date of birth, her Home Office number, and I asked them for a comment. And their response was very much that the fault was on her side, that she hadn't um, provided sufficient evidence to prove that she was here legally and that she hadn't filled in the correct forms. Um, and their advice was also that she should get more legal advice. That was frustrating advice, seeing as the same government had abolished legal aid for immigration cases like Paulette's. So for the Home Office to tell people who they have already told are ineligible for benefits, they've told are not allowed to work, to get private legal advice is just a very 
a strange thing to suggest because they're already people who are being pushed towards destitution because of the Home Office decisions. Even though the government failed to sit up and take notice of the article about Paulette, others hadn't. The very morning they published, Amelia got a phone call. From a man who said, you must talk to my father, who's in a very similar situation. He's just been released after five weeks in immigration detention. He arrived here as a child. He spent all of his life here, totally law-abiding, tax-paying person. And you need to come and talk to him. So I arranged to go and see his father. He's a man called Anthony Bryan the following day. And Anthony had had two spells in immigration detention, one of two weeks and one of three weeks. And he also had been told that he was on the point of being deported back to Jamaica, again, a country that he hadn't been to for half a century that he left as a child and where he had no close relatives. Amelia followed it up. And days later, they published the story of Anthony Bryan. Now, some people with less internal cachet might find it hard to get editors to publish such a similar story so soon after the first. But after years of producing award-winning work at The Guardian, Amelia has clout. Plus, the editors seem to recognise just how scandalous the situation was. They agreed they should keep going. Because the first two stories that we wrote about were so extraordinary and so clearly wrong, it was quite easy to persuade my bosses that this was something that I should continue to look at. As 2017 ticked over into 2018, Amelia was troubled. She was continuing to hear and report on the stories of individuals caught up in this cruel system. People like a man called Sylvester Marshall, who was somebody who was suffering from prostate cancer and had been told by his doctor that he needed to have a series of intensive radiotherapy to treat the cancer and who had been told when he went to the hospital to start the treatment that he couldn't have it unless he paid £54,000 because he didn't have documentation to prove that he was eligible for free NHS care. And Sylvester was, again, somebody who'd been here since he was a teenager, who had worked all his life and who had believed absolutely that he was a British citizen. Each time, Amelia had to fact-check the story she was hearing rigorously. Any mistakes would not only undermine her reporting, but could also prove dangerous for people whose immigration cases were so scrutinised and precarious. So with every case I wrote about, I tried to get as many bits of documentation from the individual I was interviewing, and I went through all of that really, really carefully. And it makes me a bit sad when I look back at my picture album on my phone because around this time, all of the kind of cheerful pictures of my children and my pets, they sort of get completely swamped by home office letters and lawyers' letters. And I was really, really careful to go through it because I didn't want to make anybody's case more complicated. I wanted to absolutely be sure that... I wasn't making a mistake or that I hadn't misunderstood what the situation was. And also because so many of these cases seemed so hard to understand that I had to really, really drill down through 15-page Home Office rejection of Leave to Remain letters and I had to wade through pages and pages of evidence that people had provided to the Home Office trying to prove to them that actually they were here legally. 
and the amount of research that people were forced to do to prove that they were what they really were, which was entitled to British citizenship, was really remarkable. So people were going to primary schools that they'd attended in the 1960s and early 1970s, asking for documentary evidence that they had been there. And in London, it's kind of amazing how many primary schools have been closed down, turned into luxury housing, or their records have been archived in places which is very hard to find. But individuals affected and their whole families turned into amateur detectives and were going around museums and long forgotten about archives to get these documents to show that they were on the pupil roll in 1968. And the, the crucial thing was to show that they had been living here before 1973, which is when the key bit of immigration legislation was introduced that provided the cut-off point. Amelia had originally been a little nervous about the risk people were taking in telling their stories. But in fact, what they noticed was those people that she was reporting on suddenly seemed to find their cases progressing positively for a change. The Home Office seemed to be very anxious to expedite the cases that we were writing about so that almost sometimes before publication, the individual had suddenly had documents couriered to their home after months or or years of contesting the problem with the Home Office. So it became clear that actually it could often have quite a positive impact for those people interviewed. And that made it easier in a way to persuade some people to be interviewed because I was able to say that in a number of cases, actually by um, highlighting your case, the Home Office has responded very quickly to resolve it. But it also creates rather a kind of uncomfortable situation as a reporter because now I'm getting dozens and dozens of requests every week from people who have very difficult home office cases who hope that we might write about it and that that may somehow help them and I have to explain that you know we can't write about all of them because that's not really what we do. (laughs) The newspaper can't be full of individual immigration cases. We, We can only really write about cases where we think that there's a trend or a wider problem. But it is difficult because instinctively you want to be helpful. Reporting these individual stories was one thing, but she wanted to get to the crux of just how widespread this was. How could she find out the scale of the issue? I was in touch with an organisation in Oxford called the Migration Observatory, and they had run a check on what the possible scale of the problem could be. And their conclusion was that there were up to 58,000 people who'd arrived from the Commonwealth in the 50s and 60s who hadn't formally naturalised. And so that was a really interesting figure because it gave a sense of the potential scale of it. It was also quite a difficult figure because it was an upper limit. So it could have been anything from one person up to 58,000. So it was quite hard to know how to deal with it. But it was useful because it showed that actually there were potentially thousands of thousands of people who were in this situation. The stories were coming in thick and fast now. And the Windrush scandal was becoming a familiar phrase for the public. 
Yet the government remained silent. Every time we published a story about somebody who'd lost their home or somebody who'd lost their job or somebody who had been unable to travel to see a sick relative or a dying parent, I expected that there might be some kind of explanation from somebody within government. And really what happened was that the stories were comprehensively ignored by the government. In a way, all these stories weren't all that surprising. The government had made no secret of its hostile environment policy towards foreign nationals. Indeed, it had been a key component of Theresa May's time as Home Secretary. Now she was Prime Minister, it stood to reason the aggressive stance would continue. And the consequence of that had been a turning up the dial in lots of different areas, requiring people who'd never previously been required to have documentary proof that they had the right to live here, requiring people to show that documentary proof in all number of different um, scenarios. So the amount of money that an employer could be fined if they employed somebody here illegally went from a few thousand pounds up to 20,000 pounds. Landlords were required to check whether people were here legally or illegally and people working for the NHS also had to start checking people's immigration status. So there was this new environment where a lot of civil servants and non-immigration workers were required to become border guards. It became clear that this was really where the problem had its roots. But soon, Amelia would hear just how that policy was implemented in reality. More after this. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's mid-2018 now, and Amelia's been reporting out stories on the Windrush scandal for months. And in one day, she's contacted out of the blue by a most useful secret source. Someone who's worked inside the Home Office and has worrying stories to tell. In a series of phone calls, the source lays out what they've seen. Somebody who wasn't employed there anymore but who had worked there got in touch with one of the MPs who was doing a lot of work on this subject and the MP's office sent me the contact. We had a number of detailed conversations about what had happened and he had been working for the Home Office in Croydon looking at requests from individuals who had in some way or another lost their documentation and one of the things that he said had been very helpful whilst he'd been in this office was a paper archive of registration slips that gave evidence of somebody's arrival in this country and there was a decision around the end of 2009 this decision was implemented later in 2010 to destroy those landing slips. And he said that this inevitably made the process of helping people to evidence their arrival in this country very, very difficult. Amelia faced a tricky situation. If she was going to report these allegations, then she needed to go to the Home Office to check the points off with them and to give them a chance to reply. But how to do that without endangering the source? I was really lucky in that case. I took very, very careful advice from a journalist here called Rob Evans, who's a very experienced investigative reporter. And we discussed the best way of putting his allegations to the Home Office. And I went to them with a very, very detailed account of what this whistleblower had said all of the points that he made and asked the Home Office to be very, very clear about whether any elements of what he told me were not correct. And actually, the response that they gave me was extremely detailed and broadly confirmed what he said, although they had different explanation for why the documents had been destroyed. The story ran, and still no huge political outcry no protests in the street. It was hard not to feel dejected. I definitely felt quite worried in the spring of 2018 about the real absence of any political response. And I did begin to feel a bit weary or a bit depressed about the fact that we'd been publishing story after story that really showed clearly that there was a problem and there was no willingness from any senior figure within the government to say, yes, we must look at this or yes, something must be changed. This was an issue that I was beginning to worry was being very successfully swept under the carpet by the government. 
And then in April 2018, there were preparations for the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting that was going to be held in London, which in normal circumstances would be a meeting that no one really paid much attention to. But because this was a kind of pre-Brexit meeting, there was an abnormal amount of interest being paid towards it by the government because it was seen as very important to be forging new bonds with new allies for a post-Brexit era. I've been in touch with the high commissioners of a few of the countries affected to see if they were worried about this problem. And initially, this was something that they weren't actually very aware of, I think partly because the people affected had felt frightened to go to the high commissioners just as they'd been nervous about going to the media. But by April, there was a real concern and There was a meeting of all of the 12 high commissioners that I went to where they began to talk about what their strategy was for dealing with it as a group. And in passing at that meeting, one of the high commissioners said with some regret that it was a shame that Downing Street had not agreed to meet the leaders of their countries during the summit, which was coming the next week. It was just a passing comment. Nothing much was made of it in the meeting. But sat there in the room, Amelia scribbled it down. The government refusing to address the concerns of other political leaders. That could be big. I wrote an article for The Guardian that the editors here put on the front page on the first day of that summit, saying that Downing Street had turned down the meeting. And that was really the one article that pushed this from being a story that the government could ignore to being an issue that they were no longer able to ignore because it looked like such a snub and because it became a kind of global issue. Very embarrassing for Downing Street. And within hours, Amber Rudd was at the dispatch box in the House of Commons apologising for the terrible treatment that all of the victims had received from the Home Office, um, saying that their stories were heartbreaking and promising that the matter would be resolved. It was a really, really extraordinarily swift turnaround. Here's MP David Lammy addressing Amber Rudd in Parliament. It is inhumane and cruel for so many of that Windrush generation to have suffered so long in this condition and for the Secretary of State only to have made a statement today on this issue. So over the course of that fortnight that followed, Amber Rudd apologised on a number of occasions. Theresa May had meetings with the High Commissioners and with the leaders of the Caribbean countries and apologised on a number of occasions. And the apologies went from being quite muted and restrained to becoming very, very fulsome as time went on. And during this time, Amber Rudd was explaining the kinds of remedies that she was going to put in place and she appeared at a select committee meeting where she was asked about whether or not the Home Office had targets for deportations. She said she didn't believe that there were any targets. We don't have targets for removals, but you did. I I don't know what what are you referring to. We just heard from the previous evidence that the Home Office and individual, there are regional targets for net removals. 
I, have, I didn't hear the testimony. I'm not sure what shape that might be in. But if you ask me are the numbers of people we expect to be removed, um, that's not how we operate. I do, I do think it is right. I know we're talking about Windrush here, who are legal migrants, but where there are people who are here illegally, it is right that we do try to remove them. A colleague of mine at The Guardian, Nick Hopkins, was getting a number of leaked documents that showed that actually not only were there targets, but Amber Rudd was very aware of them and had written correspondence with Theresa May about the targets. So that work was being done by my colleague Nick Hopkins. I wasn't particularly involved with it, but it was really those clear bits of evidence about the extent of her awareness that forced her to resign. Amber Rudd resigned. The Windrush scandal was infamous. The media united in its condemnation of the unfair treatment of those that had been in the country legally for decades. Amelia's reporting had gone from a single article, ignored by many, to a body of evidence that was forcing change. There was an enormous impact. A year on, 6,400 people have been given documents proving that they had the right to be in this country. A wholesale compensation package has been announced by the government that could end up paying out between £200 million and £570 million. The government expects that perhaps 16,000 people or more will apply for compensation. And I'm still getting emails from people who have come back from Jamaica because they've been allowed back into the country after a long period being refused entry, or people who've been able to travel back to the Caribbean or back to their home country for the first time in decades because they've finally got travel documents. I also get emails from people saying, I've just got my job back. It's been a really, really extraordinary and happy result for a lot of people, although compensation still hasn't been paid out. It's an incredible achievement, but not one that's come without some personal cost. It's been nearly two years since that first email about Paulette Wilson arrived, and Amelia has been inundated with people contacting her about their immigration stories. And that's hard. As a reporter, she simply can't write about every single person's case. But I know too well that turning down these kinds of cries for help can have an emotional toll. And that was something Amelia's had to navigate. What we did was we thought really carefully about how to respond to people who began to write. Because for a while, last year, thousands of people began to write in and it was very, very hard to manage. And we had a system of making sure that everyone got a response and with careful advice about the best places that they could go for free assistance. Now Amelia's written a book which will be out in October, published by Faber and Faber and The Guardian. It's called The Windrush Betrayal, Exposing the Hostile Environment. So after such huge paradigm-shifting work, Amelia's on the hunt for the next issue to dig into. I really, really like my job and... I'm not quite sure whether I'll ever find something as explosive as this, but actually I enjoy writing about the small stuff as well, so I don't think it's going to be boring. <laughs> I'm not sure what it will be next. Big thanks to Amelia Gentleman for telling that story. You can pre-order The Windrush Betrayal, Exposing the Hostile Environment, now. 
The tip-off is hosted by me, Maeve McLennigan, with production support from Alice Milliken. Our theme music is by Dice Muse, and this series was made possible by support from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and the Charities Aid Foundation. Do please review us wherever you get your podcasts, tweet about us at Tip Off Podcast, and stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.